If you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, we're going to be looking at one of the stanzas there. We're not going to do all 70-something verses. (laughs) We're going to be looking at Beth, which is the second stanza of Psalm 119. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the context uh, up front. Actually, I'm going to let Matthew Henry kind of talk about it for me. I'm going to read from Matthew Henry about the context of this passage. Uh, Psalm 119 is, is so large that it almost has a context and it has patterns and things that are different from all the rest of Scripture. It's placed right in the center of Scripture. It's the longest chapter, uh, longest um, chapter in the Bible. It's more than twice as long as some of the Psalms. So there's some important things there. And I think we're going to see as we go on, uh, hopefully that, that comes through too. So let's, if you'll stand with me, let's stand and let's read Psalm 119, verses 9 through 6. Teen. <laughs> Not going to read backwards. <laughs> How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Let's pray again. Lord God, as it's been said, we know that you are in control, that you have ordained all of this. And Lord, we pray again for Pastor Guga, that he would get healed up and that him and Rick would have a, a safe and productive trip spreading your word around the globe. And uh, uh, just the fact that we're able to do that uh, and be able to send them is is wonderful lord and we praise you for it please lord uh bind me to your word this morning lord um uh, we don't care about eloquent speaking or uh, presentation lord we want to hear from you so please please lord speak to us in your son's name amen amen so as i said we'll start here with a little bit of context about this psalm. Matthew Henry says this is a psalm by itself, like none of the rest. It excels them all and shines brightest in this constellation. It is much longer than any of them, more than twice as long as any of them. It seems to be a collection of David's pious and devout thoughts. The short and sudden breathings and elevations of his soul to God, which he wrote down as they occurred, and towards the latter end of his time gathered out (coughs) his day book where they lay scattered, added to them many like words, and digested them into this psalm, in which there is seldom any coherence between the verses, but like Solomon's Proverbs, it is a chest full of gold rings or gold coins, not a chain of gold links. And we may not only learn by the psalmist's example to accustom ourselves 
to such pious thoughts, which are an excellent means of maintaining constant communion with God and keeping the heart in frame for the more solemn exercises of religion. But we must make use of the psalmist's words both for the exciting and for the expressing of our devout affections. What some have said about this psalm is true. He that shall read it considerately, it will either warm him or shame him. He continues here. The composition of it is singular and very exact. It is divided into 22 parts according to the numbers of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each part consists of eight verses. That's going to be important later. Just they, all, they, all, they all have eight verses, and all the verses of the first part begin with Aleph, all the verses of the second with Beth, and so on, without any flaw throughout the whole psalm. Archbishop Tilson, Tillotson says, It seems to have more of a poetical skill and number in it than we are at this distance easily, can easily understand. Some have called it the saint's alphabet, and it were to be wished we had it as ready in our memories as the very letters of our alphabet, as, re as ready as our ABCs. That idea that it has uh, political skill in numbers and things that we can't even understand because it was 25, 700 years ago uh, is some of the things that Guga has been uh, producing in my heart through his preaching, right? Seeing the beauty of the literature of Mark, right? Seeing the perfection of the Bible and the whole of the story that we're talking about now is becoming more and more beautiful and Archbishop Tillotson is saying this here that it's the same thing. It's, so, it's precious the way it is in the English language that we can read it and we can have it but there's more depth here than we'll, we'll know for probably till we get there, right? <laughs> and are with him and can actually uh, see these things. So remember there's eight verses in each stanza and then it says here it employs eight different terms for the word of God. Law, Word, laws, statutes, commands, decrees, precepts, promise, and occasionally word. But all, and the, the, the psalmist treats them as virtually synonymous, okay? So he's using, but it's like also from Guga that we've learned the different facets, right, of a thing. So we're talking about God's word, his holy word that he's given to us and we're placing different names on it that creates it because it can't be described with one word, right? Just like God can't be described with one name. He has many, many names, right? And the more we study his names, the more we learn about him. So the more words we use, the more, the bigger picture we get of God's word and how important it is. So here's the outline for this morning. My dad would be proud of me that I came up with the D's that it started, the first couple were that way, and I said, oh, let's see if we can do it. I didn't have to stretch too far, I don't think, to <laughs> keep it in there. But that's going to be our outline today. You'll see the title of the sermon is just how. How. So we're always asking when we're running around, things happen in our lives, or as we're going through our lives, we're constantly asking God what, right? We go look through all the time. What do I need to do? What should I do? What should I do? And here we have God instructing us how. That's important, <laughs> right? The means by which we do things. It's, it's really important. 
So that's what we're going to focus on today is how, the means by which to stay pure. And if God is telling us how to do something, we better pay attention to, right? The second stanza, Beth is the only one to open with a question. The psalmist asks how a young person might stay on the path of purity. The image of the path representing the course of one's life is familiar from the wisdom literature, right? And also, as we heard last week, Pilgrim's Progress, right? Pilgrim's Path, we just sung Pilgrim's Path, right? The Lord of the Rings, right? <laughs> they have a path. The Hobbit, the journey, you know, it's all. So this idea of, of path is a common one throughout Scripture. And there are two paths, right? All through the wisdom literature of Proverbs. Two paths, the wise path and the foolish path. The former is obviously the path of purity. Proverbs 15, 9 through 10 says, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. So we see the idea of the way. That's what the early Christians were called the people of the way, right? Okay. So that idea is common to us. So we're going to see how we need to stay on the path of purity. <clears throat> Wisdom is primarily addressed to the young who are making fundamental life choices, but the issue, of course, remains relevant for all people. But we know the book of Proverbs, my son, it's addressed to a young man. So we'll look at that. But, of course, all of us. That was my dad when I was growing up. And I would ask my dad, what could I read? What should I read? He would say, take the book of Proverbs. There's 31. Read one chapter a day. <laughs> Do it again. Do it again. And we're going to see about hiding it in our heart and things like that. But, but that was a, that was a uh, smart thing for my father to do. And I appreciate it. But... Um, the question really is how, so we're talking about this, how do we keep ourselves on the path of purity? That's a question that not a lot of people are asking, right? Most of your friends probably haven't come to you and said, how can I stay on the path of purity, right? But we know it's important. I heard one pastor, I was listening to some sermons obviously on this, and one pastor I heard said, you're more likely to hear the question, why should a young person keep their way pure? Right? Is that what we see now? Why? Why not? I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt nobody. Right? Why do I need to follow some path and be in some way? So I thought I'd address that real quick first. I titled it, I titled it How. We have the points, but I'm going to talk about why for a minute. <laughs> why should a young man keep his way pure? Why should any of us keep our way pure? Jesus, our Savior, in Matthew 5, 8, the Beatitudes, said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've talked over and over again about the presence of God. We're seeing it again about the, guard, the theme of the Garden of Eden and the land and the future, new Jerusalem and new heaven and new earth, right? So if you want to see God, you want to be in God's presence, you better keep your heart pure. <laughs> you need to keep your heart pure. Okay? Let's turn to 1 John 
We're going to be turning quite a bit again. First John chapter three. First John chapter three, one through three. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, we now, now we are children of God and it has not appeared yet as what we will be. We know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Okay? So there we have it again. We will see him. If we have that hope that we'll see him, we will keep ourselves pure and stay on the path of purity. So again, it has to do with presence, with being in the presence of God. And of course we know we are positionally pure, right? Correct? But we have this process that we go through our entire lives until we die called sanctification, which is sanctus from the Latin for holy, set apart, holy, right? So we have this ongoing life process of increasing holiness. And it's a lot like when he was, when Guga was drawing that uh, picture of the covenants and how the progressive covenants kind of add to each other and there's always something bad happens and they get, and then bad and then a little, you know, a little more revelation. Same thing in our lives, right? Is that how, <laughs> that how we go through our lives? It's not a straight shot up there, but that's it's how it works. So being in the presence of God. The other two, the Titus and Timothy, is Paul talking to young men who are going to be in the church, are going to be leaders in the church, and he's telling them, you better stay pure. And man, have we seen how that can cause some serious, serious issues. And it also, Paul is telling them as leaders in the church to be examples and then we read Proverbs 15, 9, and 10 earlier. If those two don't get you, if you're not too worried about the presence of God and being an example and, and uh, leading in the Word of God, then Proverbs says there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Okay? So there's some pretty good reasons as to why we need to stay and be and stay on the path of holiness. One burning desire of the present-day church is to be relevant and contemporary. And only by being so, we're told, can the church be eye-catching and attention-getting in this modern world. There's fads, you know, we've seen. I've been a Christian for a while now. And I've been in the church since I was little and tiny and Ruth. And we've seen the fads and the trends come and go, right? And they will continue to come and go. MacArthur has a good... Uh, an excellent book, Ashamed of the Gospel. He also has a video series called uh, Does the Truth Matter Anymore? Those are excellent resources about turning the church back to the truth instead of to f trends and, and a different way, to turn the church back to the way. I, I picture MacArthur as, that, as uh, um, Lord of the Rings again. <laughs> Gandalf standing on the bridge with his staff, you shall not 
pass, right? That's John MacArthur to me. Charismatic chaos, ashamed of the gospel. He's numerous books. But, <laughs> but that has been, you know, praise God for him and his ministry of keeping the church pure, doing his best to do it, right? Okay. But as one surveys the carnage and heartache resulting from the current moral and ethical breakdowns, even within the evangelical church, were caused to reflect upon the words of Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. To ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it, is to return to the biblical method of living by the word of God and applying it to every phase of one's life. We just celebrated Reformation, semper reformunda, right? Always reforming. The church is always reforming, but in order for that to happen, the body needs to be, we need to be reforming our thinking. So back to our outline. Pretty good reasons why. So we and the church will stay on the path. Back to our question of how. We hear the heart cry of the psalmist in 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? This question touches the Christian who has been called to be salt and light in a society that has lost its way and cut itself loose from its moral and ethical moorings. The instructions found in Psalm 9 through 16 provide the answer for keeping one's way pure. And both attitudes and actions are involved, and I think we'll see that as we go. So let's, <clears throat> one thing to point out about the outline here too is the first point there, the discipline, okay, the discipline is action on our part. The discernment, the declaration, and the delight comes from the action, okay? So that's the way this is, is laid out. In verses 9 and 10, we're going to see what and how, and then, and then we see the results of that as well, okay? Let's go ahead and begin. Begin with the discipline. <clears throat> the discipline... <clears throat> Of the Lord. God disciplines us by His Word, right? Why don't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12? You see two different passages there. Oh, My Bible auto still automatically opens to Philippians. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, starting in verse 3. <clears throat> Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have not forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are partakers without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But his, he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I want to make a quick point real here when it's saying son, son, son. Take this for whatever it's worth. This is Dan Hastings telling you about something he heard. This is not the stance of the church. But I heard uh, from a pastor talking about this son, that the issue when women are born again, they are heirs, exactly like we are heirs, right? So that word son, we could call, we could say heir, right? The firstborn son is the one who inherits, correct? Was during this time when this was written. So just a thought, when you hear son, I'm not going to deal with all (laughs) other stuff, but just think about that. You have the same exact inheritance, all of us. We're all the same in the the body, okay? Just a a side note there. Try not to do (laughs) too many of those. But back to our disciplining by the word. So being disciplined by the word, by God, you know, he speaks to us through his word. That's how he disciplines us, right? We see it, we're convicted by it, we repent, and we change. So it involves an earnestness, a seeking of the Lord with the whole heart. We need to hunger and thirst for the intimacy of a daily walk and fellowship with our Savior and a desire not to stray from the truth. Matthew Henry again, this is in 1706, so 315 years ago. Matthew Henry said this, Few young people do themselves inquire about (laughs) what means they may recover and preserve their purity. So 315 years ago, same problem as today. Not a lot of of young people asking, how? How do I keep my way pure? But he says, a satisfactory answer is given to this question. Young men may effectually cleanse their way by taking heed thereto according to the word of God. And it's honor, it is the honor of, of the word of God that it has such power and is of such use both to particular persons and to communities whose happiness lies much in the virtue of their youth. That's an interesting phrase too. Anyway, it's important that we be in God's word so we can be disciplined by our word. And that's where our next point is. We discipline ourselves. We're still, if you're still in Hebrews, let's keep reading in in verse 12 there. Therefore, okay, in order for all these things, for us as sons to be disciplined by the Father through his word and to partake in his holiness, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. 
That reminds me of the phrase like, gird up your loins, right? <laughs> okay. And make straight the paths of your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, that's a progressive holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. There it is again, the presence of the Lord through our progressive holiness. So we need to be disciplining ourselves. We too easily cast aside the importance of daily devotion in the Christian life. Brilliance of biblical and theology understanding is no substitute for a rich personal devotional life. We've all seen and are seeing what happens when time with God is shelved for broken cisterns. The familiar quotation, to be little with God is to be little for God, is true. Where is your treasure? Do you treasure time with your Lord? 1 Corinthians, let's look at the example of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter nine, starting at verse twenty-four. <clears throat> Do you not know that those who run at a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Discipline, self-discipline, right? They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Amen. So Paul gives us an example. <clears throat> Again, with Matthew Henry. The best, this is the Christians talking about the best believers, are sensible of their aptness to wander, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And the more we have found of the pleasure there is in keeping God's commandments, the more afraid we shall be of wandering from them, and the more earnest we shall be in prayer to God for His grace to prevent our wanderings. See that? And remember David. We need to remember David in the wilderness of Judah when he cried. This is Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly, the King James says, early I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We would all do well to take, take David's words literally. Early will I seek thee. How can you start a new day better than by starting it with the Lord? How better to put on the whole armor of God and to equip yourself for the temptations, trials, and battles of the day than to spend the early morning hour in devotion with your Lord? Set aside time. This is where I need to confess to you guys and to my wife that I have not been setting aside time like I should. I have been busy. I've, you've, some of you have heard me complaining about how busy I apologize for being busy, for being tired, for being sore, for those things. Uh, I apologize. And we know that God is in control of all these things and there's a trillion things that God's doing right at this moment 
one of the things he's doing is for three days he made me sit down for hours on end in his word and not only that he gave me this passage to punch me right in the face so I am confessing to you that I need to do better thank you thank you amen fortunately this next point memorize Lord preserved me he says uh, in our passage that he your word have I treasured in my heart right we need to memorize God's word. Fortunately, there was things there <laughs> that, uh, that uh, helped me uh, in these last couple days. But praise the Lord and praise him for his word. And we need to memorize it. We need to have it in our hearts. The discipline of memorizing scripture, when practiced, serves as a bulwark against the inroads and folly of sin. In Psalm 119.12, the psalmist prays that the Lord will instruct him in the word, that he might be given discernment and understanding to the rightly appropriated and apply the truth of God. Prayer and praise to the Lord are also essential for the daily well-being of the soul. As we reflect on the particular aspects of walking in the ancient paths, we need but refer to the example of our Savior. Recall how deftly he wielded the sword of the Spirit in his encounter with Satan in the temptation of the wilderness. He, who was the Word of God incarnate, did not hesitate to quote the Word of God in order to turn aside the thrusts of the tempter. Surely, if the eternal Word so used the Bible, how much more is it essential for us poor, fallible sinners, saved by grace, to use it? Right, <clears throat> Matthew Henry again. See the close application with which David made of the word of God to himself. He hid it in his heart. He laid it up there that he might be it might be ready to him whenever he had occasion occasion to use it. He laid it up as that which he valued highly and had warm regard for and which he was afraid of losing and being robbed of. God's word is a treasure worth laying up, and there is no laying, laying it up safely but in our hearts. If we have it only in our houses and hands, enemies may take it from us. If only in our heads, our memories may fail us. But if it is in our heart, if our hearts be delivered unto the mold of it, the impression of it remains on our souls, it is safe. Amen. We're going to end this section on discipline here in the Word with the example of Christ. The Gospel record records time and time again we see Jesus early before the break of day off alone communing with His Heavenly Father in the great mystery within the covenant of redemption wherein God and the Son subjected Himself unto the Father in, the or in order to accomplish our salvation. We hear him praising and thanking the Father time and time again. Do we understand how vital it is to our spiritual well-being to be giving praise and thanksgiving to our Heavenly Father every day? We just sang, How Great Thou Art, right? <clears throat> when uh, uh, the first stanza, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the works your hands have made. Right? 
I see the stars, I hear the roaring thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. We can look at those things, and they're amazing, and people that aren't born again and don't have the word of God don't understand it. They worship it. The Greeks and the Romans, as philosophies and as smart as they were, and as they changed Western society forever, they worshiped constellations, right? And made up creatures and crazy things. But because we have the Word of God, because we can, then we can look and see in our souls what God is doing and His power in everything, in everything and every day. How very, easy, how very easy it is, the other problem is straying from the path, right? How very easy it is to succumb to the wiles of the devil when we lose our sense of dependence on Almighty God and become proud and self-sufficient. If the truth were known, how often are these attitudes at the root of heartbreaking falls and failures within the church? The lack of discipline, the lack of personal time with the Lord, right? And we've seen it way too many times, way too many times. So discipline, we need to be disciplined in the Lord, in the Word. And what does that produce? <clears throat> what does it produce? It produces discernment. If we turn, go ahead and turn to Ephesians. It produces the fruit of discernment. We're going to see that theme a lot too as we're looking through these uh, passages and talking about it. The idea, and it goes along with the Reformation, right? The idea of sola scriptura being the foundation. We're going to see a lot here of roots, right? Roots and fruit. You're going to see that theme a lot. Wherever your roots are, that's what kind of fruit you're going to produce, right? So we'll see that again and again. So being in the Word of God produces the fruit of discernment. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay? Knowledge of him through his word produces wisdom and revelation. That's where it comes from, okay? And that's discernment. You can decide, right? Being wise. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which, is <clears throat> which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Father of glory would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, okay? That we would be discerning. It also produces declaration. It, being disciplined by the word, 
produces evangelism, encouragement, exhortation, and exclamation. It's been said that the best way to strengthen one's faith is to give it away, to bear testimony to the grace and mercy of God. Verse 13 declares, With my lips I have told you of all the ordinances of your mouth. Colossians chapter 3. You can go ahead and start turning to those when you see them. Colossians chapter 3. 12 through 17. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy... And beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which is indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or in deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father so the word of Christ verse 16 richly dwelling within you Wisdom, right, produces wisdom. And then teaching, right, evangelism. Admonishing, exhortation and encouragement. One another with psalms and hymns, right, exclamation. We do all those things when we have the Word of God in our heart. Or it says here, dwelling richly in us, dwelling richly in us. It comes out. Whatever's in, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? If it's, whatever's most in there will come out. Again, <clears throat> Matthew Henry. Can you tell I used Matthew Henry's commentary on this? Matthew Henry. He, <clears throat> David, uh, most likely David, it doesn't say actually my Bible, it's most likely David wrote 119. He, David, had edified others with what he had been taught out of the word of God. Verse 13, With my lips I have declared all the judgments of thy mouth. This he did not only as a king making orders and giving judgments according to the word of God, wouldn't that be nice, nor only as a prophet by his psalms, but in his common discourse. Thus he showed how full he was of the word of God and what a holy delight he took in his acquaintance with it. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Thus, he did good with his knowledge. I love this phrase. He did not hide God's word from others, but hid it for them. See that? Difference between him and the Roman Catholic Church that we've been talking about, right? He didn't hide God's word from others, but hid it for them so he could give it back to them. And out of that good treasure in his heart brought forth good things. Those whose hearts are fed with the bread of life should with their lips feed many. Feed many. And this declaration, you know, <clears throat> there's declaration, right? It also needs to be consistent. 
<coughs> Skip the page. <laughs> the declaration's consistent. So don't forget that your actions speak too. Some would say louder, right? You hear that phrase, actions speak louder than words, right? Well, they at least speak as loud. <laughs> Some people use that as an excuse, right? Actions speak louder than words. Just live, just live your faith. Just live your faith. At some point, the Word of God needs to come out and you need to declare what the Word of God is, right? But <clears throat> actions speak louder than words. To bear verbal testimony to God's Word necessitates a consistent lifestyle. The walk must back up the talk. If you're still in Colossians, just flip back a couple chapters to chapter 1 and look at 9 through 12. For this reason, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Right? The Word of God would dwell richly in you and you would have discernment. So that you will walk in a manner, right? All those things are good. God's Word's in my heart. It's coming out through my mouth. But because of that, or so that, we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness, steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Filled with his knowledge, spiritual wisdom and understanding, walking in those things. So it's important. <clears throat> and also we have James White. <clears throat> James 1, 21 to 25, it says, let's turn there. Turn to James 1. This is an important one. I like James. James is one of the, like Peter. It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Doesn't pull punches, right? <clears throat> James 1, 21 to 25 says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness, all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty. Think about that phrase for just a second. The law of liberty. Those things don't go together really well except for in God's economy, right? You follow the law, frees you from the slavery of sin, right? And abides. But one who looks intently on the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in whatever he does. Amen. So discernment or <clears throat> discernment and declaration. Another thing it uh, produces is delight. Verses 14 to 16. Delight. So in these remaining verses in the section of Psalm, 
uh, 119, verses 14 to 16, notice what this living according to your word produces in the heart and life of the believer. I rejoice as one rejoices in great riches. Joy is that deep inner sense of well-being that comes from living in a right relationship with God. It's not dependent on outward circumstances. Material possessions do not produce such joy. But walking in agreement and fellowship with the Lord by the word does. Psalm 1 is pretty familiar, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. There's our metaphor again, right? Planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. There you go. It's our root and fruit. And all that he does, he prospers. <clears throat> and that's prosper in holiness, right? We're not talking about prospering in whatever I want to do. Prospering in what God wants you to do in our holiness, right? So these terms, I meditate, I consider, you know, passage in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. How strange these scriptures sound in this restless, turbulent world. No redeemed child of God can afford to neglect time every day when he chews on the word, turning it over in his heart and mind, thinking about it, applying the will and the way of the Lord for his own life. The real issue is not how many times I go through the word, but rather how many times the word goes through me, right? We can see the delight in Psalm 119. All those verses up there <clears throat> use the word for delight, the Hebrew word for delight. Joy in God's word is the theme of, of Psalm 119. I don't know if has anybody counted those verses. How many is there? There's eight that... Interesting, goes back to what Tiltson said, said. I can't pronounce his name. But he said there's more in this passage than we think. So there's eight verses. There's eight different words for law. There's eight for whatever it's worth. There's eight times this, this Hebrew word's used. So whatever it's worth. But joy in God's word is the theme of the whole passage of 119. Many believers could testify from their own experience that as they have sought to keep their way pure, by living according to God's word, the Holy Spirit has produced within their hearts and minds an actual delight for the word and for the things of God. This is not an artificial or superficial desire. Rather, it's a heartwarming, soul-enriching taste for and satisfaction from spiritual things which is nourished by the Holy Spirit through God's word. Right? We can take comfort, delight, and rejoice that God's word is effectual, right? It's effectual. Isaiah 55, this passage we mentioned. Wow, I turned right to it. All right. <laughs> Isaiah 55, verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. And we look at the context here. It says, so is, it'll be like, and it's going to be like, God producing rain and snow that waters the ground 
and produces fruit, <laughs> roots and fruit, right? So he's using that analogy to say, my word's going to be the same way. <clears throat> it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and hills will break forth into shouts of joy before thee and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Declaration, right? Declaration. God's word is going to come. We're going to see it, believe it, and declare it. Declare the beauty of God's word. <clears throat> A fact uh, we often overlook, too, is the reality that Satan hates God's word and will do all possible to oppose it and negate it. From, his, from the very beginning, when he said, uh, Surely God didn't say that. Remember chapter 3 of Genesis? So he's been trying ever since then. Through the temptation of Christ in the wilderness that we just heard about, Satan twists and perverts Scripture, seeking to snatch the Word out of human hearts as he goes all out in his opposition to the Bible. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to place our full confidence in the integrity of Scripture and by God's grace and the enabling of the Holy Spirit to give ourselves to the practical application of God's Word in our lives every day. <clears throat> so it's effectual. It also uh, causes repentance. One of the effects of God's Word is repentance. So why would I put repentance under delight? It's kind of weird, huh? Delight and repentance. Turn to 2 Corinthians. See what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8, 9, and 10. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians from the first, you know, replying to the first letter. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And we've experienced, if you're a believer, you've been a believer for a long time, you've experienced in your own life the joy that comes from dumping the sin, right? And changing. You've seen it. You've seen it in this body when people have repented to each other and repaired relationships and the joy that comes out of that, the true joy that comes out of that. So there is joyfully repenting because of God's word and being in God's word. It's one of our main effects. So praise him for that. And our last point too here worked out that that wasn't on the, this isn't on the, uh, the list, but you could add it to your list of, of D's. Discipline in the, world, in the word produces discernment, declaration, delight, and doxology. Paul's example in Ephesians 3, we'll turn there in just a minute. But we know good biblical theology produces doxology, right? Let's turn Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. 
For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, depth, and, and know that the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. So there's our theology, right? Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He constantly is, in his books, he'll just break out into praise and glory and doxology, right? Same in Romans 12, right? 11 chapters of Romans, some of the like hardcore doctrine, 11 good thick chapters of doctrine to chew on. And then chapter 12, or chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, you know, right there. The only reasonable thing is for you to sacrifice yourself and to be uh, working for the Lord, working with the Lord. But he, he does that over, over and over again so we can follow his example. There's a couple of quotes I'm going to wrap up here. One mark of truly orthodox theologians is that their writings always include expressions of doxology. Knowledge of the Lord's character and his work should inspire heartfelt praise. For why learn about God if we're not moved to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, to worship and glorify the Creator? When studying theology does not prompt us to adoration, we must question whether we are more concerned to puff ourselves up with knowledge than to glorify God. Keeps going here. As we rightly approach the study of doctrine, we will certainly break out in doxology. This can be especially true as we consider the writings of those thinkers who have been faithful to Scripture. And here he's quoting C.S. Lewis, which we would look at as a man who was faithful with the Scriptures. We can go look at his writings, right, about the Word of God to help us. But C.S. Lewis writes this about uh, Athanasius, which was, you know, end of the third century. <laughs> he's reading some, he's uh, contemporaries with uh, uh, Augustine, I believe. So he's reading Athanasius, and here's what he says. I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a bit of theology, a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. You can kind of picture CS doing that. But the idea of, and it, we've experienced that too, right? You've experienced that in your Christian life when you have to three days to cram for a sermon. <laughs> and the joy that comes from that. So I want to end with one final quote here. This is from A.M. Sheergiven in a book he wrote called The Bible in World Evangelism. 
And this is what he's talking about, the great, I want to tie it, this kind of ties it into last week's sermon and some of the other sermons that we've heard about the importance of the scripture. And now we're, you guys excited about we're just on the cusp of being able to talk about the covenants, see the whole plan of redemption in the Bible, and then start again in Jenna. I'm getting excited about Guga coming back and preaching. So. But to tie that into this, what we've been learning, this is a, a quote about the evangelical reviver in England, Okay. The evangelical revival was a return to the Bible, or at least it was accomplished by such a return, in much the same way as the Reformation was accomplished by a rediscovery of the Bible. In the years immediately before the revival, the Bible had not been suppressed, it had merely been neglected. That's the English church, right? Separated from the Catholic church in the 15th century and uh, King Henry and all that. So they still had the Bible, it was still there, they were hiding it, but it was being neglected. It was being neglected. It was a book that few read and few acted upon. The evangelical revival was not only rooted in the Bible, it gave the Bible a central place. God grant that today the Bible might indeed be rediscovered and given the central place in our lives, in our churches, and in our land. Let's pray. Lord God, that's what we ask, is what we need uh, in this country and in the world right now is a rekindling of love for you and for your word. And Lord, we know that comes through you. Lord, pour out your love. Pour out your knowledge through your word that it would produce these things in our lives, that it would produce wisdom, that it would produce exclamation, that we would tell your word we would share your word lord that it would produce delight in us that the bible would produce delight in this country and not scorn and lord in this church that you would hold it to you hold it to you through your word lord we ask all these things because of christ his wonderful sacrifice our savior we pray in his name amen